Hey, it's Mike Broomhead. Um, first of all, thanks for watching these. We released a podcast on 9-11 with two men directly connected to Ground Zero in New York, Mike McAvoy and Mike Angeloni. And I hope you'll go and check it out anywhere you download podcasts for Amazing Arizonans. Go and check that one out for 9-11. What we're doing here is throughout our conversations over the last months and years, we've had conversations with people about their connection to 9-11. It's going to be people you recognize, people you know. Their stories are amazing and incredible. So that's what we're doing here this week is to show you the connection that still happens with the people from 9-11 all the way through these 22 years later. A podcast about amazing people from an incredible state. Amazing Arizonans with Mike Broomhead. This is Gordon C. James of Gordon C. James Public Relations. He's the PR person for the Bush family. And at the time, he was working for the Bush White House with George W. Bush. This is him talking about what he was doing that day and the days that followed. I had a very interesting experience. Um, We were actually on 9-11-2001. We were actually um, here in Phoenix in bed when the first plane hit. And uh, we got a call from a friend of Lisa's, and she said, turn on your TV. There's something terrible happening. And um, one of my sons was working for MTV at the time. And um, as the time went on, and we we didn't know, you know, when it was going to end. I mean, the fourth plane mm-hmm. crashed, and the Pentagon was hit, and the two two towers Nobody knew this was the beginning or the end or what was going to happen. And we started trying to find my son. And, of course, the cell phone were jammed. You couldn't get through. And um, believe it or not, I was ready to get in my car and start driving to New York because <laughs> yeah. I was desperate to find him. About uh, about 4 o'clock that afternoon, Phoenix time, uh, we got a call on the landline, and he had walked all the way back to his apartment on the Hudson River um, across the bridge and made it and made it back. Where safely. was he? He was just three blocks from, from ground zero. MTV's offices were just down three the road, blocks. down the street. Wow. And, um, uh, of course, we were elated. And about, uh, about a month later, there is an annual event um, – called United Nations General Assembly in New York, where the president comes and gives his annual address there. And so I was asked to do that trip. And um, I got to New York, and the first thing, of course, we did was we went down to to, to the site. And at the at the time, it was still a, a crime, crime scene, and you couldn't take pictures or anything. Um, but there was a big wall, a big plywood wall that had been set up, and all the leaders that came were signing the wall. And Every time they would find a, a new a body, they would sound a horn, mm-hmm. and everything would stop, and then they would take the body out. Um, and then when the when the president went down there, it was just a very moving experience. And um, I wasn't there when he did the bullhorn. That was that day. It was about a month later yeah. when I was with him. Um, but the but the patriotism of our country and the flags flying from over front doors around the country and the support um, that everyone was showing for each other and, you know, for their neighbors and for their families was just unbelievable. It was a different time. 
that bullhorn speech, that off the, what seemed to be an off-the-cuff remark in response to someone yelling out to the president, we can't hear you, and his response saying, well, I can hear you, and the people that brought down these buildings are here from all of us soon, that roar from those firefighters, that uh, and all rescue workers, I don't know if they were all just firefighters, but it's, that seemed to be, in that moment, an American cry. I mean, it was obviously just very spontaneous. But that kind of echoed, I think, the feeling of Americans. And we were just so afraid. And then out of the fear came anger. Right? Oh, totally. I, I mean, it was terrifying. You know, we really, we were under attack. Yeah. Who knew when, how far this was going to go? Was somebody going to hit downtown Phoenix or... I? Remember, they were stopping trains and the subways. And then even back then, because buses were still Greyhound and Trailways were still big companies and they were pulling buses over. There were reports that there might be things on buses. We just had no idea what was going to happen next. And I think for the first time, Americans felt like we weren't secure in the lower 48 in the, you know, in the in the continental United States. You know, during World War Two, there were. Attacks in by the Japanese in Alaska, mm-hmm. and I, th- I believe in Washington State there was a, a somebody lobbed something in, and then there were Germans that got in on the East Coast and stuff, but it really was just you know just very minor. Well, this was this was horrific. Yeah, and how it could happen, mm-hmm. and and I think um, I. I think President Bush felt a, um, you know, his really, his only job, the only job of the President of the United States is to secure the United States. That's really and truly. And I think he felt like he'd let us down somehow. Did he ever talk to you about it? I mean, did you have conversations with him about it? Not directly, but I've been, I've, I've, I've been in, uh, when he describes the day, I've mm-hmm. been in, multiple times when he's given the address where he's described the day. It's it's an unbelievable story. You'll be on the edge of your chair listening to him. Here's a name and a face you'll recognize. John Hook from Fox 10, great broadcaster, talking about the plane that went down in Pennsylvania and the significance of that story for him. They had the recordings of people on board the flight. (laughs) So that was played in in the main complex. You could listen to these conversations. And, um, It's amazing, you know, when you talk about death, that people on the verge of death, often there is a calmness. These people were very calm. I wish I just couldn't believe it. The, they um, were very calm, calling loved ones, knowing they were going down. I talked to a wife whose husband was on a flight. I had her on the air once and on one of our 9-11 shows and talking about... Um, having to explain to her husband because they didn't know that other planes had gone into buildings and Uh, that this plane was probably destined for a building. Exactly. And then they make the decision that they're going to go and take over the plane no matter what happens. That's... It's, yeah. It's incredibly brave. I don't think they had a lot of options. I think smart people on that plane said, look, this is what's going to happen to us. We have a couple of choices. Mm -hmm. We can either just sit here and ride it down, or we can try to take control of the plane. And they made the right choice. Yeah, and if if they ride it down, they know that other people's lives, they're they're dying anyway. That's right. But that's still... Uh, it's heavy. You know, you look at the if you look at the, watch the videos and the documentaries of Ground Zero of the towers, the people that made the choice to jump as opposed to burn, and you think, I, I know, who can imagine making those choices? Well, 
to see a perfectly operating airplane fly into a building willingly, mm-hmm. it's so incongruous. When I still see that video, I can't actually process it. And, and the, we all live where we, in proximity to Sky Harbor, where we are and where you guys are. We're used to the sounds of those jets flying at a fairly low level. That noise before that impact of the jet and how fast you could see how quickly it was going. Oh, he was pushing the throttle. It was. It was. He was accelerating yeah. for maximum effect. Yeah. It was. It was crude, but from the Al Qaeda point of view incredibly effective for mm-hmm. a really crude weapon. And, you know, bin Laden said afterwards, I, I you know, kind of kind of like the Japanese said after Pearl Harbor, I, I think we've probably awakened these guys and it may not be pleasant. Right. Yeah. And that's the, the thing. It was, it was horrific, the whole thing. And being down there, you know, in Battery Park with all of the pictures of the missing and candles. This is, again, four weeks later. It was... Man, I still haven't gotten over it. Me, me either. And I have friends that um, here in Arizona that are live here now, that are directly connected to nine eleven. Um, my friend McAvoy, his brother was a firefighter with Ladder Three in Lower Manhattan. As a matter of fact, it's their fire truck that's inside the museum now. Oh, I've seen um, it. So yeah, I've his his brother was one of the firefighters, wow. and and his best friend was working in the towers as a trader with Cantor Fitzgerald. So he lost two people that day and watched the buildings come down from his office in Brooklyn and. We talk about it every year on 9-11. Another friend of mine that's a builder here in town was a firefighter that had retired before 9-11 happened, but immediately went back and spent 12 days doing search and rescue on the rubble in the days that followed. That was tough. We did a lot of stories on that when we were there, and there was um, it was really tough on those people because they weren't finding any survivors right. at all. It was really grim down there, and everybody was beat down because there was no no good news, and they knew... After a couple of weeks, there wasn't going to be any good news. You know, there was there was no chance of anybody surviving that. It was the first time I, in my life where I didn't feel safe, where I thought this. I must, agree with that. This must be how the Israelis feel. This must be what it's to be live in one of these countries where people walk into a Starbucks and blow themselves up or get on a bus. We didn't know what was going to happen next. The flights were shut down. What was going to happen on subway trains and public buses? And there were stories of Greyhound buses being pulled over because they had someone suspicious on a bus. We had no idea no, what was going to happen right. next. I felt that, too. I got a text that morning. Um, turn on your TV. That's all. It was a pager yeah. at the time. You know, a little pager yeah. was beeping early in the morning. Yeah. Turn on your TV. That was from my news director, Doug Bannard. And when, I wa- when I'm watching this, all the banner, all I caught on the banner, I'm looking at the smoking buildings and it says America under attack. Wow. My instant reaction was to go to the window looking. I, I'm not kidding. Looking for incoming missiles. Yeah. I didn't know. I had not. At that point, you know, we didn't know Al Qaeda. I didn't know who's attacking us. <laughs> Who launched? I right. thought I thought it was a missile attack. Right. When I first saw the image, then they're replaying and showing yeah. stuff. And I'm like, oh, a plane hit the building. Yeah. But at first I went to the window. I'm like, do we have missiles incoming? All right. That's that was my first wow. reaction. I've talked with Angela Harrell from the 100 Club of Arizona many, many times. Her connection to 9-11 when she was working for the State Department. She tells us here why her husband and her mom were so worried about her on 9-11. 
There were only two times that Bruce genuinely ever was worried about me and my overall well-being, and one of which was on 9-11. And we actually were... um, Bi-coastal, so to speak. He was here in Arizona, and I was working in Washington D.C. I was in, I was at the Foreign Service Institute, ready to go overseas to work at the U.S. Embassy in uh, Santiago, Chile, and I um, was again in a training as a special agent, like no, no real big deal. Um, however. When I was in this training, um, it was early in the morning, and it was in Washington D.C., and it was. Uh, just a typical day. I mean, uh, like everyone had as it started 9-11, uh, September 11th specifically. And this building where I was was just outside of the Pentagon. And we're sitting in the class and somebody was like, hey. And they saw like a plane or something out the window, but nobody thought a thing of it. I don't even know why somebody just went, hey. Like, you know, we're just kind of bored. We're looking around and all that. And and it was uh, nothing until it was. You know, later we heard like a noise and again, didn't think anything of that. Somebody could have been unloading the dumpsters or whatever the case was in the parking lot. And I was working with all the diplomats and no big deal. And then all of a sudden they came and knocked on the door and they asked for all of the special agents to come into the hallway. And at that time, they wheeled in a television, right? They wheeled the television over. How long ago this I know, which is hard to hard to imagine. But um, it was it was fascinating because we're watching the TV now in the hallway and the agent in charge or my supervisor basically said we need to evacuate this building and we need to do it right now and we didn't we didn't come to a training class prepared with all of our gear and our equipment and this and that and Needless to say, I mean, we ran back to our where we were staying and we're literally driving through yards to get radios and equipment because cell phones weren't working to get our vest, to get our gear, to get everything that we needed to function in this capacity. And then we started running through the building and this is a huge facility and going through every single door, you know, making sure there's nobody in there and, and um, taking out our Diplo tots, which were our toddlers that were on site in the daycare. And as we're doing that, I just want to get a phone call out. I just want to let my mom know that I'm okay. I want to call Bruce and let him know that everything's fine. And I um, I just am so taken aback because I finally get a phone line. And when I grab this phone line, I um, I get this line out and I call my mom really fast. And when I call my mom... She answers the phone, and I said, "Is it didn't sound like her. And she goes, hello? And I said, is this Joan? And she goes, yes. And she's all choked up, and she said, yes, this is Joan. And I go, Mom, it's me, it's Ange. She goes, oh, okay, all right, go do what you got to do, do what you got to do. But to hear your mom's voice... Because she knew you were there. She thought she was getting that call because she didn't recognize my voice. Right. And that was devastating to me to have that impact. But 
I was able to get that call out. And then later in the command center, I was able to get a call from Bruce as well. And he was grounded here in Arizona working on that DPS right. rescue helicopter because no one was allowed to fly. And he was um, saying to me, he's like, geez, we have this call. We really want to go. We can't get clearance from the FAA to fly. And I go, oh, well, um, I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but I'm sitting next to someone from the FAA. I wonder if you could just talk with them. <laughs> I handed the phone over and they were able to go do a rescue. Um, but again, timing in life is just yeah. an amazing thing. An amazing thing. Recently had Jerry Colangelo in studio talking about his Integrity Summit. And we talked about 9-11 because the Diamondbacks were in New York for that World Series. His perspective on this is pretty amazing. It was surreal. I mean, the whole experience. It was uh, um, an amazing time to be affiliated with um, some, something like the Arizona Diamondbacks in, in Major League Baseball and be a part of what was happening right on the ground in New York City, um, you know, going down to the site and still the smoke was still smoldering and the smells. And I mean, you want to talk about um, changing your life and perspective on, on a lot of things. We felt we were right in the eye of the storm. I mean, that's really how we felt. Um so to have had that experience, you know, God has a plan in everyone's life. And I'm, I just happen to believe that things happen because they're supposed to happen the way they, they do. And so for us to be playing the Yankees, to be there in New York, to be part of the whole 9-11 um, experience to that degree um, was unbelievable. I mean, it had such an impact on all of us, not just our organization, but Think about the impact of the people here in Phoenix, in Arizona, because their team was there right in the heart of all that stuff. Um, it was amazing, and I'm not going to say I'm thankful that uh, we we had part of that. No, I don't mean it that way. Those were the cards that were dealt. We found ourselves there. I think it had great impact on each of us. I think it had a lot to do with our organization in a very positive way about dealing with life and the reality of um, how things can take place and you lose loved ones like you lost your brother. Uh, everyone's had that experience in their in their families for the most part, many at least. Mm. And so um, thankful that we're Americans. You know, I've traveled the world because of sports. I've met all kinds of leaders in different countries. There's no place like home. There's nothing like representing your country on the international stage. And that's why my time in USA Basketball, um, in winning the four gold medals in 8, 12, 16, and 21 uh, in various cities around the world, and representing our country it doesn't get any better than that. So continuing the theme with the Diamondbacks and 9-11, at separate times I sat down with Derek Hall, the president and CEO of the Diamondbacks, and Luis Gonzalez Gonzo. We talk about their perspectives of being in New York at that time during the World Series. Bob Brenly in our front office you know, asked the players, uh, would anybody be willing to go or wanting to go down to Ground Zero and to the command center? It's not mandatory. No obligations, nothing, and uh, I would say 99.9% of the guys want to go. Of course, there are some guys that just, you know, don't want to see things like that, and uh, which is fine. Nobody gave them a hard time or anything for it. So we went down to Ground Zero. 
We went to the command center. Kurt Schilling gave a speech at the command center. I don't think there was a dry eye in the building. You know, every uh, every post was there, fire department, police, uh, you know, just everyone who was working. Their, their leaders were there at their tables all the way around. Um, then we went down to ground zero, and that was... That was where things really got real. It was an eye-opening experience because what we were watching on television, now we're seeing live. When they were finding bodies, they were stopping, they were lining up, they were pulling them out. And we were there as a team just to let people know that, you know, this, these are the greatest or, or biggest games of our lives playing in the World Series. But we have the utmost respect of what's going on. We, we didn't lose focus of what's really happening in the world. And this is real life. It wasn't a movie. It was real life of what was going on. And for us to be around that and stuff, it was something that I'll never forget. And just seeing all that and going to that fire station that sits just outside of where those trade centers were, that a lot of stuff went down around it. And that firehouse is still standing. Um, and, uh, you know, just to tell everyone, thank you for, you know, doing what you do and being out there. I know it's a difficult time, but, and then we talked about as a team, if we win the world series, we're not going to celebrate on the field there because we had, we'd won the first two games. We felt, mm-hmm. we felt like we had the upper hand on them and we're like, okay, if we win this thing, you know, out of, out of respect, we don't want to, we don't want to disrespect anybody there. We were an older team. We had families and knew what was going on. So, um, the man upstairs had a different plan. We just were talking about President Bush. Yeah. Let's talk about that first pitch, what you saw in that. Ooh. Because a- after getting to talk to him, the fact that the D-backs were in that World Series is one thing. But that pitch meant so much to this country. Not baseball, to the country. Yeah. Can you explain there, your feelings about it? Right. It, it, well, there were two, in my opinion, two of the greatest first pitches I've ever witnessed. The first, number one by far, is is President Bush because of the impact of 9-11 that year, how important it was. Uh, of course, the World Series hit Diamondbacks in their first and, and the Yankees. To be back there at Yankee Stadium and for everybody to be on there, you get chills just thinking about it again and not only did he just toss it over right and he's out there and he's got a bulletproof vest underneath his president's zip-up jacket he throws a strike and he probably threw it i mean he had he had some adrenaline going i wouldn't be surprised if a radar would have caught it at 80 or 85 miles per hour i mean it was a strike it was perfect and then to have you know both managers come out and just embrace him and for him to look up at the crowd and the crowd to go crazy it was a, it was a it was it was as good a moment of american pride us pride as i can ever recall hey thanks for watching all of this and these great stories from 911 i think it's important to continue to tell them for those of us that are old enough to remember where we were on 911 and the significance of that day we've got to keep these stories alive to the generation that has no memory of it. That's why I think this is important. Thanks for watching it. Please share it. Discover more amazing Arizonans with Mike Broomhead at KTAR.com, the KTAR News app, or wherever you get your podcasts.